ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I wanted to start by talking about the true crime genre and, like, the popularity of the podcasts and documentaries about real-life murders. What do you make of our obsession around that, given your experience? Yeah. I mean, I guess I have two thoughts come to mind. One is people's imaginations are always captured by mystery. And so many of these true crime podcasts and television shows are focused on sort of unsolved crimes. And um, I think that that population of survivors is a particularly vulnerable population because people who have gone through this experience, they can feel like their loved one gets lost Mm. again. You know, they're not remembered with reverence or respect. Clinical psychologist Patricia Harney knows grief and the torment of not knowing what happened to a loved one, both professionally and personally. So I was 21. Uh, I was a senior in college when my boyfriend was murdered and the person who killed him was not found until, uh, not identified. Well, even that's complicated, but I'll say not found until 35 years later. What happened to Patricia's boyfriend has never been the subject of a true crime podcast. This is the first show she's spoken to about it. But what she wants you to know is the element that's often left out of true crime coverage is the nature of the grief the people left behind suffer. They want their stories told, but so often the story focuses on the mystery. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. Because the grief from this kind of loss, a murder, is in many ways pretty different to the grief a person might experience from other kinds of loss. What are kind of common experiences in grief are much more intensified and then sometimes very distinct. So today, we're focusing on that missing part of the picture, the distinct kind of grief loved ones endure when someone is killed. I'm Sana Kadar. This is All in the Mind. Back in the 80s, Patricia Harney was a college student. She was studying psychology in upstate New York, and she also worked at a group home. And it was there that she met David. He was um, a couple years older than I was, so he had graduated already. He is a musician. He was working multiple in multiple places, trying to sort out, as young people in their early 20s often do, um, trying to sort out what he was going to do longer term. So I, I saw him, you know, interact with, we were staff counselors, I saw him interact with um, the residents in the house and how incredibly gentle he was with people who are really vulnerable. Patricia was pretty smitten. We were friends for about two years, co-workers and friends for about two years. Um, And I um, had a long-standing interest, (laughs) Um, and he was very funny. He was a wonderful writer. He loved to read. He loved the outdoors. He loved to hike. So yeah, we were together really for just a month and a half, but um, I had been waiting for a long time. In that early phase of the relationship, when Patricia was just 21 and David just 26, David was murdered. So the situation was he also worked in a homeless shelter. And it was a small 
uh, residents. This was the late 1980s, so safety standards were um, not quite what they are today. And he was working on an overnight shift. There were no uh, residents in the shelter at the time, and he was found dead the next morning by coworkers who came in to um, take over the shift. Oh, wow. um, there was a person who was considered a suspect, and attention was uh, focused on that person for 30 years, despite multiple um, attempts to connect that person to the crime, there was never any physical evidence that did connect them. So over the years, the case would get um, passed to different investigators. In the immediate aftermath, how did that loss affect you? Um, so I was in my last semester of college, and it was um, it was really devastating. It's hard. It's really hard to explain how. Yeah how devastating that was. I I remember the moment hearing the news. My I my I screamed, my mind went blank, and um, I was alone when I got the phone call and I just sat and stared at the walls for several hours. I remember the sort of frantic sense of disbelief, anguish, terror, fear. I remember, and because the person wasn't the person who did it was not known, mm. wasn't arrested. You know, every time I walked out the front door, I didn't know might I pass this person who who was the person. Mm. So there was a level of fear, which you know I think is a part of this of the acute experience of surviving mm. a murder. And I was interviewed by the police two days afterwards, two days after I learned. They interviewed a number of people who knew him. And then I heard nothing from the police again until almost 30 years later. all experience losing someone we love at some point in our life. It's the price we pay for living and loving, as the saying goes. And it's a horrible experience in any circumstance. But there are some key differences in the kinds of feelings that can emerge following a traumatic loss, like the one Patricia suffered. Although you might be thinking, isn't all loss traumatic in some way? Here's what it means. The way that I think about it is specifically those deaths that are sudden, not from natural causes, or that are developmentally unexpected. And so a traumatic loss is essentially defined by the person's experience of it, but those are the situational factors that often lead to the experience of traumatic loss. So when you say not developmentally expected, is that like the loss of a child kind of thing? Yeah, the loss of a child, a young adult, right. So in non-traumatic loss, losses that are more likely to be developmentally expected, that are anticipated, and or that come from natural causes, the kinds of feelings that come up are... Certainly sadness is a primary feeling, um, longing for the person you've lost. People can feel regret about missed opportunity that they wish they had been able to experience with the person they've lost. They may feel guilt for um, things that had happened in the relationship that they didn't have an opportunity to repair. 
people's sleep can be disturbed. So those are common in experiences of non-traumatic grief. We also might experience some kind of cognitive fog, particularly in the first days of learning of the loss of a loved one. But in traumatic grief, Patricia says some of these feelings are intensified and some feelings are quite distinct. In traumatic grief, there's a, there's not only sadness, but there can be anguish, a kind of tortured sorrow, which might relate to feelings of injustice, uh, particularly when uh, the death is caused by another person. Anguish over the potential suffering that one's loved one may have experienced. Um, and in non-traumatic grief, sometimes we are, you know, when we're, we're confronted with death of any kind, our own existential anxiety about our future death may get heightened. But in um, instances of traumatic death, there can be real terror in the immediate present, as opposed to thinking about the eventuality of our own death. Mm. And so uh, just as sort of an example, my father died suddenly at the age of 84. Uh, He died peacefully in his sleep, probably from a heart attack or stroke. We don't know. But Mm. um, while it was sudden, it was peaceful. And at the age of 84, it was not particularly unexpected. Um, when I first learned about his death, I was very sad. And out of a sense of kind of wanting to honor his the moment of his passing, I didn't want to move. I just wanted to kind of stay still and absorb the, the news. Mm. But when I learned about my boyfriend's mur- murder, I couldn't move. Wow. Or I felt like I couldn't move. Right. So there's a, a very different sort of subjective experience. One of the other elements that can make the kind of grief that follows a traumatic loss distinct is that symptoms of post-traumatic stress can get mixed up in the experience. So those symptoms include hyperarousal, re-experiencing intrusive thoughts, nightmares. Um, and, and so those are not grief symptoms. And I think that's really important mm. to kind of make note of. So it's common when we've lost someone we love under any circumstance to have possibly to have sleep disturbance for some period of time. But nightmares in particular are not necessarily common. But nightmares are quite common in situations of traumatic grief. And nightmares are something Patricia herself experienced for years. I had very vivid nightmares for a long time, really for for quite a long time. And that was um, probably the most prominent way that I could track the persistence of this distress. So feelings of anguish, terror, symptoms of post-traumatic stress, all of these are what can make the experience of grief following a traumatic loss distinct. Then there's the feelings of shame that can accompany the grief that follows a murder. Because homicide is a crime, we have a situation in which an experience of losing someone, um, our bereavement is associated with a crime, and that can really usher in a sense of shame, particularly when crimes are unsolved, you know, questions remain like, well, what happened? What was the person doing? Were they involved in some kind of criminal activity themselves? And those questions, even if they're not articulated openly, they can still kind of hang in the air. 
Did you feel shame following the loss of your partner? And if so, why? Yeah, I think that for me, there was so many questions that got evoked theories about what might have happened that it left me very confused early on. I, I could say that there were there were questions that the police raised when they interviewed me, questions about his character mm. that were wrong, but in a time of great vulnerability can be hard to push off. And when something that so shatters your sense of what happens in the world mm. happens, um, you can question everything. Yeah. Right. And so back when you were sort of in the acute phase of grief, did you know or understand the differences in the kinds of feelings that emerge, you know, after, after that kind of a loss? Like, how did you make sense of like the intensity of feelings you were going through? Um, No, I didn't. And that's a really good question because I don't think people around me really understood the difference either between grief and traumatic grief Mm. of ways in which the suddenness, the developmental unexpectedness and the, the violence had an impact on me. And again, even though I did not witness the violence, when you care about someone, you can easily imagine what their, or your mind tries to be with them Mm. when you weren't with them. And so I found myself trying to imagine what happened and that, um, and that meant kind of working my mind over violent and, and traumatic images. In the last couple of years, Patricia has begun writing about her experience and the nature of traumatic grief in places like Slate.com, the American online magazine. In fact, that's where I first came across her story. I I wonder if the experience of grief from the loss through murder is a particularly lonely experience because people might not know how to relate to that. You know, was it lonely? Yes. Absolutely. And in fact, that was one of the most gratifying things about publishing that piece in Slate were the number of comments readers made about how validating they felt that this essay was. And several people wrote, this is such an extremely lonely kind of trauma. And so that makes me think a lot about how, in general, how community and social connections are so important in the process of bereavement. And that can really get severed in single incident murders. And that can be, uh, that can contrast with the ways in which there, there can be advocacy groups and movements for people who've survived the loss of a loved one in a multiple victim or a mass victim kind of situation. So for example, I know several people who lost a family member or a loved one in the September 11th terrorist attacks, and they found solace over time in their community of families who came together around having lost loved ones. 
And there isn't that kind of community in this type of a crime. Hmm. And how did not knowing what happened to your boyfriend and who, you know, exactly what led to his killing and who was responsible, how did that add to your suffering? There was a, there is, I think, a very natural, persistent, there's a natural desire to know how and why a loved one dies. And when that information is absent or withheld, Mm. suffering continues. And so for me, I would say I found a way to compartmentalize, to kind of keep this experience to the side of my, you know, kind of internal life. But it did leave me with a lot of anxiety and catastrophic thinking so that when I would get close to people, I would get very fearful that some harm would come to them. In the decades that followed David's murder, Patricia did manage to move on with life. She graduated, became a clinical psychologist, got married, had children. She's now an assistant professor of psychology in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And she also has a private practice. You know, we all bring to these experiences our own unique sets of strengths and vulnerabilities and how those come together in the aftermath of a traumatic event really varies. And so I, you know, had certain abilities to maintain relationships and maintain friendships, but it was more that my thoughts and feelings became sequestered. So I Mm. found a place for it, but I had room for other things. She says therapy also helped. But always wondered in a certain way. I was always waiting to find out. Then, in 2016, nearly 30 years after David's murder, police contacted Patricia out of the blue. Not only did they have information on what happened, they had empathy. So over the years, the case would get um, passed to different investigators. So this most recent investigator reached out to me. The very first thing that he said when when we spoke on the phone was, first, I want to say, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I was so um, almost surprised at how much I appreciated him saying that and how much those words mattered, even after 30 years. Mm. Did no Mm -hmm. one ever say that at the time from law enforcement? Did no one ever acknowledge your loss in that way? From law enforcement? Absolutely not. Wow. Absolutely not. Now, many people around me did, of course. Sure. But but not from law enforcement. And so what was the new information that police brought to you seven years ago? So um, back at the time that the crime happened... um, As I mentioned, there were kind of insinuations and questions about his character or relationships with other people and what, or with the person that they were particularly focused on. And what ultimately came to be known was that he was um, at this shelter where he worked, he was protecting a young woman who was leaving a violent boyfriend. Oh. 
because she used the shelter to flee a man who had threatened to harm her. She did escape and um, the boyfriend came looking for her and the understanding now is that uh, David was not willing to say, to reveal her whereabouts. Mm. And so in, in a sense, he, you know, died in the service of protecting another person. Wow. And knowing, knowing that, knowing, knowing more about what likely happened, um, really, it just helped on so many levels. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine the impact of that information. That's, that's heartbreaking, but also what a, what a beautiful person. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and so with the likely suspect, by the time they found out this information, he was dead already. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so how did that, knowing that, affect you? Like, you know, because you won't be able to get justice in the form of a trial is knowing what likely happened and who was responsible enough to have helped you feel better? Yes, yes. I mean, I certainly, I wanted to, I always wanted to know what happened. Mm -hmm. And I was always concerned that whoever did this might harm other people. Mm. So there were two things that I wanted. One was information. And the other was to know that whoever did it was not going to, continue to perpetrate harm. And so knowing that he's dead um, allows me to feel like he is no longer at risk of perpetrating harm. And so how is your grief these days? How do you feel now, this many years down the line? Um, well, I guess one thing that has been really interesting to me is that once I learned more about what likely happened and that this person is no longer alive, I don't have nightmares in the same way that I did. Right. So that's, you know, I think that speaks to the power of fear and to the need for the restoration of some sense of safety, mm. even at a very deep level, you know. So as this new phase of understanding about what happened has evolved, I actually feel generally much freer emotionally. Mm. And the other thing Patricia says has been key for her healing is the validation and acknowledgement and empathy she was finally shown by law enforcement. That was really kind of transformative for me because that came when it did, I was able to talk about the experience again, not only with my friends, but also in my own therapy. And it allowed me to go over details in such a way that it's very moving, really. The, the, the therapist I see was, it was as if she could experience it with me, that I could experience it again, and she was with me. And so I wasn't alone. Obviously, it was like imaginal. Nonetheless, I was able to bring her into the experience in a way that I hadn't been able to 
when I didn't know what had happened and there were all these layers mm. feeling that remained sequestered. So like the feelings of anguish and shame, are those kind of gone now? Well, shame is certainly gone. Um, anguish, I would say, you know, diminished in some ways over time. I mean, there'll always be incredible sadness that this wonderful person lost his life. And I'll always be, you know, uh, one always wonders mm. what could have been, right? But the shame is gone and the fear is diminished. With your work now, do you specialize or deal much with people who have lost loved ones through murder? Um, is that at all something you focus on? That's that's not a focus of my clinical work. Actually, my, my work is more as an educator. I run a training program for um, psychologists in training. Um, I do have a small therapy practice in which I see people who have experienced um, all kinds of life difficulties, including loss, but not specifically this kind, though I am more likely than other therapists to inquire about histories related to this and even in family histories. Uh, And this is something that I see that while our field has gotten better, quite sophisticated in training around the treatment of trauma, we still have not really integrated commonly in training programs treatment and evaluation for traumatic loss. The, the research is there, but there's still kind of a, a gap in what's standard education. Mm. So in a sense, that's a part of my, my mission. And for people who listen to this podcast, um, what do you hope people listening get from your story? What do you hope they'll better understand about the impact of these kinds of crimes on, on the people who are left behind? Yeah. Yeah. Especially if maybe um, they're, you know, true crime bands. Yeah, yeah. I guess I would say, you know, related to this issue of stigma and crime, that what can sometimes be, if not forgotten, kind of recede is that no matter what the circumstances are in which one person's life is taken by another person, that's always tragic. And all life has value, Mm. you know. And so since this event, I've been very aware of how stigma and shame can really shape what people talk about and how willing they are to seek support and help. So whatever we can do to reduce the sense of stigma will allow survivors to continue to process their experience of grief and live their fullest lives. That is Patricia Harney, clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychology and psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Now, one angle we didn't cover in this episode is that people who suffer a traumatic loss are more likely to meet the criteria for something called prolonged grief disorder. The studies that I've seen have reported that People who have lost someone traumatically by homicide or suicide or even um, accidental overdose uh, may be up to five times more likely to meet criteria for prolonged grief disorder. But there is some debate in the psychological community about the validity of this disorder. So if you're interested in learning more about that, both the debate and what prolonged grief disorder is, 
We did a whole episode about it back in April 2022. It's called Grief and the Pandemic. We were also looking at how the COVID pandemic had affected the way we grieve. So to find that, either search Grief and the Pandemic on our website or scroll back in whichever app you get your podcasts. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.